Welcome to the Fully Disclosed Podcast. I'm Kim Harrison. Like you, my roles are multifaceted. Wife, mom, granny, Bible teacher, and writer. But I'm convinced the best thing of all is simply belonging to Jesus. And the greatest thrills are discovering Him at every turn. After all, He promises that those who ask receive, they that seek find, and to those who knock the door will be opened. Everything fully disclosed. For in Him we have everything God is and everything man is intended to be. In May of 2014 at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia, Professor Isabel Cochier took a team of students to Banfield Marine Sciences Center for their final research mission of the semester, 40 feet beneath the surface. In addition to the starfish that were the objective of their search dive, they would also have the opportunity to observe a variety of aquatic life and underwater secrets. Sure enough, Two of the students emerged from their final dive with something that seemed to hold a mystery, like a sunken treasure of a modern-day shipwreck. Come to find out, the object covered in rust and all sorts of marine species was a corroded camera. When they got back to the lab, Chiffon Gray, a BMSC diving and safety officer who had assisted Professor Cotier, discovered that the retrieved camera was a marine goldmine of aquatic organisms. They found species from two animal kingdoms and at least seven different types of aquatic plant life living inside the camera as well as on its outer surface. But the camera held even more treasures. The team discovered a type of memory card that had been released to consumers 15 years earlier, indicating that the camera was likely a recent loss. The card also contained a lot of memory capacity, which allowed for the potential for a lot of recorded content. At the lab, Professor Gray carefully used a pair of tweezers to pull the memory card out of the camera, hoping that it could answer the questions of this sunken treasure. Who did it belong to? How long had it been lost? What stories and secrets would the memory card reveal? She cleaned it off carefully, connected it to her computer, and found that it actually worked. A large number of images appeared on her screen, and even a couple of videos with timestamps. The final video file revealed that it had been recorded on July 12, 2012, indicating that the camera had been submerged underwater for two full years. The pictures weren't the touristy type, but rather seemed to tell the story of a family reunion. It was clear from the images that the family had gathered to mark something significant, something more than a nostalgic or sentimental event, but rather like a commemoration. The final film clip recorded on the memory card was timestamped just before midnight on July 12, 2012, with a poignant image of a full moon over the serene Vancouver waters. The team was moved by the images they saw and determined to find the owner of the camera. Could the pictures themselves guide their search? They used both old-school methods of community message boards and the modern-day tools of social media to post the photos and get the word out, hoping someone would recognize those in the shots. A week later, a local Banfield Coast Guardsman said he recognized someone in the photo posted to a community board. Two years earlier, he had been working in the very area where the diving team of students had wrapped their last semester of research and where they had retrieved the camera from its watery grave. With the information the Coast Guardsman was able to provide, along with the files that Professor Gray had access to, they were able to identify Paul Burgoyan as one of the people in the photos. They reached out to him and discovered that he was indeed the owner of the camera. Appreciative of the team's efforts to return the camera and memory card to him, Mr. Burgoyne was also able to fill in the blanks of not one, but two stories that the pictures revealed.
The photos and video clips recorded by the camera were of a heartbreaking family affair that had occurred that weekend. They had all gathered together to spread Paul's mother's ashes, who had recently passed away. As the weekend came to a close and family members left to travel back to their individual homes, Mr. Bogoyan paused a moment before heading out on his own 30-foot vessel. He filmed that last clip of a full moon over the serene waters and unknowingly captured a literal calm-before-the-storm clip as all aquatic chaos was about to let loose. As he attempted to sail the 300-mile journey back to his home, he got lost. He mistakenly thought he was on autopilot, and the rough waters became impossible to navigate. His boat hit some rocks, and he had no choice but to abandon ship in the cool, dark waters. He watched helplessly as his vessel sank right in front of him. Scrambling, he swam to shore. Climbing on rocks, he shouted for help. He couldn't see the inn at the top of the cliff and waited alone for six hours in the dark of night until the Coast Guard rescued him, having been alerted by those at the inn. As he recalled the events of that weekend in July 2012, Mr. Burgoyan reminisced that finding the camera and the photos was the bonus. He was most thankful to have emerged from the shipwreck with his life. Why are stories like this so intriguing? The photos of a family reunion commemorating the loss of their matriarch have a sense of compelling nostalgia, but the fact that owner and camera rose out of a kind of watery grave seems to elevate the story. And those of us outside of the family who hear of it are also drawn in for a few moments, taking on a sort of personal interest on behalf of the Bergorian family and glad for a happy outcome. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed in Acts 2, 22 through 24, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The disciple Peter, whose confession of Jesus as Messiah was the rock upon which our Lord would build his church, in this passage chooses the resurrection of Jesus as the foundational text for his first sermon to the church as Peter the Apostle. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus will be foundational for all the apostolic sermons recorded in the book of Acts. The resurrection of Jesus unites all apostolic sermons in the Bible, and it dominates all of the writings of the New Testament. Those Jews in attendance who heard this first sermon were pierced to the heart, according to the passage in chapter 2, asking Peter and the other apostles how they should respond. Peter answers them in verses 38 and 39, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And in verse 41, we find that 3,000 souls were saved and baptized after hearing Peter's message. As the harvest on that day of Pentecost testifies, there is power in the work of the Holy Spirit. There is power in the resurrection of Jesus the Son, a saving power. In fact, the confession of his resurrection is the starting place in the life of every believer. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The resurrection of Jesus is the power of salvation for you and for me and for everyone who will believe. The power of Jesus' resurrection triumphs over the power of death, as Peter emphasizes in his sermon. Because Jesus overcame death by his resurrection, we overcome death through his resurrection. Death no longer has the final word for us and therefore has no power over us. Life, Jesus' life, conquers death for all who will believe. He says in John 14, 19, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Our resurrected life is guaranteed by his resurrection from the dead. By the power of his resurrection, our physical bodies will be transformed into a physical resurrected body in the likeness of his glory. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. No resurrection, no power. And without the resurrection of Jesus, the whole Christian narrative crumbles. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Every one-on-one conversation, every class taught, every Bible study led, every sermon preached is empowered by the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the foundation. Let us not shy away from it and take every opportunity to proclaim it. Luke eleven thirty and 32 says, For just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We're going to take a few minutes to consider the story of Jonah. And I want us to notice two things that Jesus reveals about Jonah in the passage I just read. First of all, Jesus claims the story of Jonah for himself. He links Jonah's story to his story. There is something about the story of Jonah that coincides with the story of the Son of Man. Secondly, Jesus reveals that the story of Jonah is a sign pointing to something. It is a living picture of something. We've all heard the story of Jonah many times for as long as we can remember, and we will no doubt hear of it again. But I want to emphasize some things about it today that are very helpful in our understanding of the power of Christ's resurrection. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul describes a knowing, a knowledge of God that goes far beyond the intellect, a type of knowledge involving the whole person. Listen again to the action this verse reveals and hear how he describes knowing God as active application, as a partaker of his life, suffering, and death that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. In essence, Jesus invites us to participate in the gospel in our mortal flesh. It's why Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.10, a verse I've shared before and will no doubt share again. 
always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Our mortal bodies are to become a manifestation, an illustration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ each day he gives us breath. And Jonah's story helps us to see how. Now Jonah was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II, and though it is not unique that he would be commissioned with a message for a nation other than the nation of Israel or Judah, it is unique that Jonah is told to go to that nation with his message. He is to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria and an area now known as modern-day Iraq. It had a population of about 600,000 people and was the stereotype of a pagan capital. It represented everything Israel hated, and with good reason. Assyrians were terrorists, brutal, vicious, treacherous. They would dismember their captives, decapitate them, burn people alive. The Assyrians killed many enemies, not just to sustain their own needs, but for the joy of conquest. They were unusually vicious toward their enemies and notorious in the ancient world for their cruelty, cutting off extremities of people, gouging out eyes, impaling bodies, and even peeling the skin off of living victims. Nineveh was always on the prowl, looking for other nations to conquer. It's little wonder that Jonah despised them. But he was instructed by God to go to Nineveh with a warning that if they didn't repent, God would destroy them. You know what happens next. Jonah says no to God. He disobeys, heading in the opposite direction, climbing aboard a boat sailing for Tarshish. Jonah would rather suffer the consequences of disobedience than preach hope through repentance to Nineveh. He wanted God to judge them, and he would risk judgment himself to keep from having to deliver the prophecy to Nineveh. So he does everything he can to escape the presence of God and goes below down into the hold of the ship, and there he falls asleep. But the Lord hurled a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. All the others on board, Gentiles, cried out to their gods, but things only got worse. Finally, the captain finds him and implores Jonah in Jonah 1.6, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. It's striking in the book of Jonah, as you read it, how the words of truth are mostly spoken by pagans. Should it not be Jonah, the prophet of God, encouraging his other shipmates to pray to the one true God? Well, the storm worsens, and the sailors cast lots to see who deserves the blame for the calamity they are suffering. You know who ends up with the short end of the stick, and they interrogate him. Who are you? What's your occupation and country of origin? Who are your people? In verse 9, Jonah tells him, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He also lets them know that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They are stunned by his admission, but they ask him what they can do so that the storm will be made calm. Jonah says to them as one longing for death to throw him overboard. At first, they're afraid to do that because they don't want to be accountable to God for innocent blood. But eventually they have no other choice as the storm rages on. And so they pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea. Immediately the storm and the sea are calm. Hebrews 12, 4 and 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is awe-inspiring how the Lord works in the lives of others as his nature is revealed. The Lord reveals that there is only one option for Jonah at this point. He must be tossed into the sea, not to kill him, but to discipline him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And after all that the sailors have witnessed, culminating in the Lord's discipline of Jonah, Verse 16 testifies of how he uses all of the events witnessed at sea that night to work in the hearts of the Gentile sailors. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's rather sobering, isn't it? To think that the Lord can use corrective punishment not only for the good of his children, but also as a testimony of his divine nature to the non-believers who watch it unfold before their eyes, confirming his divine sovereignty in accomplishing all of his work. I mean, I would prefer to have the Lord use me in the lives of non-believers because I've obeyed him, not because I've disobeyed. Such accountability is indelible. Even so, the Lord's work was not diminished by Jonah's disobedience, and it is not diminished by mine. In his sovereignty, the Lord is free to use me, and he is free to use you in any way he desires. In whichever way he chooses in any given situation, we can know that he does it so that he is glorified and so that his work may be accomplished for our good according to his divine purpose. Chapter 1 ends with the verse that will identify Jonah for all time. Verse 19 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Psalm 139, 8 and 9 says, If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Jonah caught a boat in Joppa and headed for Tarshish in the foolish attempt to flee the presence of the Lord. But just as David declares that even in the remotest parts of the sea the Lord is there, so too would Jonah encounter him there in the deep, in the belly of a great fish, and in a way that Jesus will draw a direct corollary many centuries later. So as we find Jonah in the belly of the large fish-type monster, We as the reader are allowed to hear the prayers of a man who has been cast into the deep. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Through the years, I've read and studied this prayer many times and frankly, have been left dissatisfied. Where is Jonah's repentance? Why does he not own up to his disobedience? He acknowledges his distress. His attention is turned to God in his thoughts and his prayers. He makes a vow of a sacrifice of thanksgiving, but he never confesses his sin of disobedience. But as I contemplate Jesus' words in Matthew 12:40, I wonder if something greater than Jonah is at work here. Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, so chapter 2 ends with the Lord's command over the fish to vomit Jonah up onto the dry land. Got it. Now remember that at the end of chapter 1, Jonah is confronted with a type of death by being swallowed up by the fish, where he will remain for three days and three nights. But by the end of chapter 2, he is blessed with this type of resurrection by emerging from the fish on dry land. Remember, Jesus has defined this as the sign of Jonah, 
and what Jonah experienced in being swallowed up by the fish and emerging out of it three days later is a picture of the gospel yet to come many centuries later when the Messiah will come and connect the dots of Jonah's story to his. Okay, so allow me to again remind you of the words in 2 Corinthians 4.10. Paul says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Has not Jonah unknowingly carried about in his body the dying of Jesus by being swallowed up by the fish? And then, of course, the second half of 2 Corinthians 4.10, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal bodies. Has not Jonah unknowingly manifested the life of Jesus in his mortal body by emerging out of the fish alive after three days and nights, having been all but dead from within? And all of a sudden, Jonah's experience is one of glory and privilege. He knows something of the death and resurrection of Jesus because he has experienced something of them in his mortal flesh. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And is it possible that as Jonah prays to the Lord from inside the fish, that Jonah himself becomes our Lord's confidant as he reveals to Jonah something of what he will experience on behalf of all of us in his death on the cross and his burial in a tomb. Jonah 2.2 says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. And in verse 4, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again to your holy temple. And finally, in verses 6 and 7, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Do these words grant us a small glimpse of our Lord's experience as he takes our place and is buried on our behalf? I contemplate that possibility reverently, and I admit that I am unable to declare it definitively. And yet, I study them in the light of Jesus' words that something greater than Jonah is at work here. That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, the reluctant, rather whiny prophet, is given one of the greatest privileges of all prophets to not only testify of the coming Messiah by his words of prophecy, but to become a living prophecy, a living picture of Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, the very gospel itself. And through Jonah, we are able to see the power of the gospel in picture form. We know from Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, the power of testifying of the resurrection when 3,000 Jews were converted and added to the church. So what became of Nineveh and the living picture of the gospel in the life of Jonah? Well, when Jonah emerges out of the fish, the Lord gives him a second chance to obey the commission the Lord had given him of warning the Ninevites to either repent or be destroyed. Jonah takes the message and speaks it throughout the city over and over as he walks. And here it is, God's message for Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Just eight words. That's the message from God to the people of Nineveh 
through his prophet Jonah. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. How does the city respond? Here's Jonah 3, 5 through 9. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let man call on God earnestly that each may return from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This becomes the largest evangelical response ever recorded as hundreds of thousands of people are saved from destruction. Not because the speaker was passionate about his message. Not because he had devised a grand strategy to win the lost in the city. The city of Nineveh was saved because the Lord's prophet was a living picture of a type of death and resurrection that Messiah would accomplish centuries later. Something greater and more miraculous than Jonah emerging alive after being swallowed by a great fish. And yet Messiah would link it to his work, to the very gospel itself, and the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, that we would embrace the potential of not only speaking of the gospel of Jesus, suffering and death and resurrection, but of living it out in our mortal flesh, not so that we are admired by others, but so that the experience of Jesus becomes our experience as we become partakers of the divine nature, the divine work as participants in the work of the harvest. You know, such a great privilege and joy to join together with you and other believers who love the Lord and his gospel and his word. May we be an encouragement to all we encounter to love him more. I think that's my greatest hope for you that as you listen to each episode of the Fully Disclosed Podcast, you love Him more. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.